This is Cardinal Francis George. I invite you to join me for the next few minutes to reflect with Father Robert Barron on the Word of God, which is the Word on Fire. Word on Fire Catholic Ministries is a nonprofit ministry at the forefront of Catholic evangelization, using new media to spread the faith on every continent. Father Barron challenges us to open our hearts to the Word on Fire, which is God's Word of love for each of us. If our hearts are open, the Lord can change and transform us so that we might speak with love about the one who is love. The global benefactors of Word on Fire, with the support of the Archdiocese of Chicago, now present Word on Fire. Peace be with you. Friends, we come today to the end of that extraordinary Eucharistic discourse, which has been our focus for the last several weeks. Jesus speaking in the Capernaum Synagogue. It's the most remarkable reflection on the Eucharist anywhere in the Bible. Well, in the section just previous to our Gospel for today, so we've been reading it you know, bit by bit the last several weeks. In the previous section, Jesus had clearly and unnervingly laid out what we Catholics call the doctrine of the real presence. Now, when his audience balked at his words, Jesus said, listen, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man, and I, I specified that the word in the Greek there is not eat the way human beings eat, but more like gnaw. The word is, is um, trogain, which indicates the way animals eat. Unless you gnaw on the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. And then he specified, just to rub it in, my flesh is real food and my blood is real drink. They wanted, in short, symbolism and metaphor, and he gave them in-your-face realism. That's where the passage ended from last week. And it sets up our reading for today. Listen now as this reading begins. Many of Jesus' disciples who were listening said, This saying is hard. Who can accept it? Now, the Lord knew their murmuring, which is why he said, Does this shock you? Strong language, isn't it? Does this shock you, what I'm saying? Now, here's what I want you to see at this point. If Jesus were simply trading in symbolic or metaphorical speech, why would anyone be particularly disconcerted or shocked or find the saying hard? You see the point I'm making? The people are so balking at what he's saying that they must have known, look, he's not trading in ordinary symbolic speech. You know, I could speak of a piece of, of red, white, and blue cloth as a symbol of the United States. Or a man could give a woman a, a band of metal with a, with a jewel set in it and say it metaphorically expresses his love for her. A mother could prepare a splendid Thanksgiving meal for her family and say, if she has a poet's touch, that she had put her very self into that meal. Now, the point is, would anyone find that language shocking? or off-putting, or hard to take seriously, then we'd say, no, that's ordinary, symbolic, metaphorical talk. Therefore, something else is going on here in the way Jesus is talking about his body and blood. Clearly, his audience knew he was not trading in ordinary metaphors. They, they knew, and you, know, you get it from the content, but you wonder, to the very tenor of his language, if it didn't suggest that something else was on offer here. Now, 
we begin to sense even more clearly what's at stake when we attend to the next words out of Jesus' mouth. Listen now to what he says after this exchange. What if you were to see the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? Now, it's strange, isn't it? So they've been arguing, debating about this language, metaphorical, is it real, it's shocking. So he says, well, what if you were to see the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? I mean, what, is, what sense does that make right here? Well, remember, we're in the Gospel of John. The claim of John's Gospel announced in the very beginning, in that magnificent prologue, is that Jesus is the very Word of God become flesh. In the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, the Word was God, and that Word became flesh and dwelt among us. He is emphatically not one more in a long line of prophets, bearers of the Word. Rather, he is the very word which the prophets bore. He's not like one of the patriarchs or heroes of the faith. Rather, he's the one who called the patriarchs and to whom the heroes bore witness. That one, that word, came down from heaven and pitched his tent among us. That's the Hebrew, that's the sense of the Greek there. There's Hebrew behind it. He pitched his tent among us. He tabernacled among us. And this is precisely why a mystical relationship to him matters. If he were just another prophet, then he would have taught great truths. And he might well have engaged, as Isaiah, Jeremiah, and Ezekiel often did, in fine metaphorical speech. There'd be nothing particularly shocking or new or strange or hard to take about that. Think of Isaiah, Jeremiah. They're always using metaphors all the time. But Jesus, precisely because he's the Word made flesh, is pressing towards something else, something deeper and more strange. He is the one who's come from the very inner life of God in order to invite us to share in that life. And therefore, he's the vehicle by which we are inserted into the inner life of God. Now, now listen again to his words. What if you were to see the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? Do you see now the import of those words? The bread that he will give, which is his very flesh or self, is the means by which we are mystically united to Him in His heavenly reality. See, friends, there's Christianity, you know, in a nutshell, is that we get access to the spiritual life of God precisely through the flesh, through the body of this Jesus. If He's one more prophet, He'd be pointing to the spiritual reality of God. He'd be speaking a word about it. But since he's the Word made flesh, his flesh becomes the vehicle by which we enter into the heavenly reality of the Word. Now, his audience, Jews of Jesus' time, indeed, I would say devotees of any religion at any time, 
are perfectly at home with prophets and spokespersons and even mystics. But when a human being speaks of himself as the vehicle by which others come to participate in the life of heaven, well, what's going to happen? <laughs> Listen now to the gospel. Many of his disciples returned to their former way of life and no longer accompanied him. So it's gone, friends, up and down the Christian centuries. The teaching on the real presence of Jesus in the Eucharist has indeed been, from this speech on, a standing or falling point. People begin to fall away from him precisely when he announces this doctrine. A prophet using metaphor, a prophet bearing the word, no problem with that. Who's going to walk away? But this language is so strange and so disturbing that many of them fall away. Now, I don't want to chide my Protestant friends here too much, but, you know, look in the 16th century. The first indication that the Protestant movement would splinter and divide was a great disagreement between Martin Luther and Ulrich Zwingli precisely on this point of the real presence. Now, Luther is, uh, has a different position than the Catholic position, but he was defending the real presence of Jesus. Zwingli, one of the early reformers, had said, no, the best way to understand the Eucharistic language is to think of it symbolically. He took a more common-sense view. You know, I mentioned those symbols earlier about the Thanksgiving meal or the wedding ring or the flag. Well, the, the bread and wine at the Eucharist are kind of like that, Zwingli said pretty easy to understand. Well, Luther took exception, and they had a famous dispute at Marburg, which is, a, to this day, still a great German university town. But it was the sign, I think sad to say, that the Protestant movement was going to divide more and more. And I think it's fair to say, most Protestant churches have followed the Zwingli line and not the Luther line on the issue of the real presence. You know, in the early centuries of the church's life, there was a practice called the disciplina arcani. That means the discipline of the secret. What does it mean? Well, the purpose of this was to draw people only gradually into the deepest mysteries of the faith. Lest someone reject a teaching out of misunderstanding. You know what I'm talking about? So, you're trying to draw someone into the fullness of Christianity. There are certain teachings that are they're strange. They're hard to get. They're, they're um, out of the ordinary. You don't start with those. Rather, you'd start with something a little more accessible, and then you draw people gradually into the secret. So there was a discipline of the secret. Like, don't give away the secret doctrines too quickly. Again, not that we're trying to keep things from people, but we're trying to draw them in in a disciplined way. Well, one of the most important elements of the Disciplina Arcani was instruction in the Eucharist. They're not going to give that right away, and we still don't. We still wait till people are ready to take in that teaching. Now, the deepest roots of the Disciplina, Disciplina Arcani can be sensed in Jesus' speech here in Capernaum. Listen now as he speaks to the twelve. It says, Jesus then turned to the twelve and said, 
do you also want to leave? It's an extraordinary moment, isn't it, in the New Testament? Here's now his most intimate disciples. So a lot of the out, sort of the outer circle disciples had wandered away, but now he turns to the twelve, to his intimate followers. Do you want to leave? In other words, do you find this teaching of mine too much to take? He'd been gradually drawing them into communion, hadn't he? Think of the, um, the come and see moment in the beginning of John's Gospel when he says to the two disciples of John the Baptist, well, come and see, and they stayed with him. Think of how he's trained them through his moral and spiritual teaching. Think of how through miracles and signs he's taught them more and more about who he is. But finally he comes to this sublime mystery of the Eucharist. He's been practicing, if you want, the Disciplina Arcani. He's been keeping that secret from them till now. And now that he's revealed it, and many have fallen away, he wonders, are they going to fall away? I'll close here, friends, with this, but it's so powerful and moving to me that it's Peter who speaks. Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of everlasting life. Peter has sensed now the truth of it. Though he probably couldn't articulate it very well, probably didn't fully understand it, he sensed the truth of this. And speaking for the church, for the twelve, he says, Lord, to whom shall we go? You've got the words of everlasting life. It's about the Eucharist. And the successor of Peter, down to the present day, still speaks that confession. Lord, to whom shall we go? We've sensed in this revelation the deepest truth. And that's why this Eucharistic teaching that we've been looking at for the past several weeks remains so central to what it means to be a Christian. It's how we're drawn into the very life of Christ. And God bless you. I hope you were moved today by the word on fire. I pray that together we might become a people on fire with love for God and neighbor here in Chicago and wherever these words are heard. Until we join Father Barron again next week, I'm Cardinal Francis George, and I pray that God will bless you and those you love. Four years in the making, and it's finally here. Our new Catholicism documentary series, book, and study program are now available to order online at catholicismseries.com. Will you help me introduce this epic film series to your parish, school, family, and friends? Catholicism is an unprecedented adventure around the world and deep into the faith. Learn more at catholicismseries.com or call 1-866-928-1237. That's 1-866-928-1237.